How much did they take? Um, more than I would have um, liked. Yeah, maybe listeners should know uh, Steve has literally just given blood. So if you hear a very loud thud and then no talking, <laughs> that's <then> right. <laughs> we know yeah. something's happened. We'll cut the podcast off. Yeah. And the wait is over, listeners. We are back with another edition of Prescription Sound. Today, we're exploring exciting new digital technologies, their role in the future of medicine, and also in just optimizing our own health and performance, which is definitely a big passion of mine. And my partner in crime today is none other than digital medicine expert, Dr. Steve Steinhubble from the Scripps Translational Science Institute. So we start by joining Steve as he tells us about the operations over there at STSI and his specific role within the organization. So Scripps Translational Science was started by Eric Topol now over 11 years ago. And it was really, from the beginning, geared towards um, individualized, what's now called precision medicine. Initially, the focus in 2006 was on uh, genomics, because that's existed. But people will remember that in 2007, Fitbit first became available, the iPhone was first announced. And that was really kind of starting the birth of what is now become and called digital medicine. And and so very early, Eric, in collaboration with Qualcomm, was able to secure a grant to start a digital medicine department at um, Scripps Translational Science. And in a way, still with that same focus on individualized or precision medicine, we're using digital technologies to more precisely define phenotypes while the other half of STSI is focusing on genotypes. So I was fortunate enough, I've known Eric for 20 years and he trained me as a cardiology fellow. And so I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to come and, and build our digital medicine department. And, you know, here, the uniqueness of it isn't the, the just STSI, it really doesn't exist anywhere. So it was such a great opportunity to say, okay, we, in every other industry, digital technology is completely transforming how we provide services, but has had, and really I would still say, has still had minimal impact on healthcare. So um, from the beginning, our focus has been on how do we implement digital technologies into healthcare to better and more precisely treat individuals. Do you think some of the reasons behind why it hasn't had that immediate impact on healthcare so far is because the focus has been largely on genomics and not necessarily on some of the um, environmental triggers that kind of lead to the chronic disease that we have right yeah. now. I, I think that's certainly part of it. Um, genomics has a much uh, bigger head start in, a, in, in very appropriate ways. But if you look at, let's say, the top 20 biosciences, medical journals um, that come out every week, they'll almost always have some very high-profile genomics uh, research, whereas digital um, health is, uh, digital medicine technologies is further behind, has very few high-quality research. And digital medicine is really an implementation science. Um, you're trying to implement it in a system that's built to resist that implementation. My former CEO used to always um, refer to healthcare reimbursement as being perversely incentivized. So it, 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 it's not just poorly incentivized, it's really perversely where it doesn't support the innovations. Uh, you know, so digital technology is designed to take better care of people in their home. Healthcare systems make money by people being sick and coming into the office, coming to the emergency room, coming to the um, hospital. So there's tension there 
where to get the evidence, you need a, an environment to be able to implement the technologies. But it's led to a lot of uh, new players in the field of healthcare. That's why Apple and Amazon and Samsung and Microsoft and Google are all involved in healthcare. Yeah, there's definitely some misaligned uh, incentives in healthcare. Are we already seeing um, pushback from people like pharmaceutical companies and insurance? From insurance, yes. Um, from pharmaceutical companies, you know, anything that improves their bottom line, they're very um, supportive of. And so fortunately, they've been um, supportive of digitally enabled clinical trials. Uh, clinical, Large-scale clinical trials, the biggest cost by far are the centers. And, and so some large trials that will cost nearly $100 million um, involve 400 centers. And it's all the face-to-face enrollment. And if you could do that digitally and do a lot of the follow-up digitally. So they have support for that. And then half of people are not adherent to taking medications long-term. So pharmaceutical companies look at it and say, well, that's half of our potential profits if people aren't taking the medicines. So there have been, you know, it's a great example of, of some of our challenges that some of the best studies done using digital technology has been built around improving medical um, medication adherence, and they've all failed. It's an example of we have a lot to learn in particular that it's less about the technology and more about the understanding of the human behavior and the use of that technology. Right. And in terms of the impl- implementation that you mentioned, uh, what is the relationship between STSI and then different clinics? So the application to the healthcare side, uh, do you collaborate with TSRI as well? So TSRI is a you know phenomenal collaborator and their strength, their historic strength is in more in a basic science, but with caliber and drug discovery, the um, combination of really being able to um, better understand a, a phenotype. An example is, is like high blood pressure, which 98% of people who have it, it's the most common chronic condition, but um, everybody is just saying, oh, you have essential hypertension. Well, essential hypertension probably includes dozens of different genetic and, and phenotypic expressions that we've never known. Wearable technologies, um, continuous blood pressure sensors give us the ability to refine that. The work done within TSRI caliber um, helps us understand mechanisms and then identify treatments that could improve those more specific mechanistic uh, causes. Last year, San Diego was home to an exciting digital medicine conference hosted by STSI. Here we had the best and the brightest minds representing uh, consumer wearables, chemical biosensors, robotics, machine learning diagnostics, and so much more. So we asked Steve what it was that impressed him most and left him optimistic for the future of healthcare. I think you summarized what was most exciting to me was the range of, of solutions and how much potential there is. And really what was most exciting is that overall theme of how all of those can be applied. The healthcare system, I mean, has really run no differently today than than 50 years ago, 100 years ago. You know, there's a lot of you come to the doctor when you're sick, you tell them your symptoms, and they take their educated guess as to what the best treatment is and what's going on. And that's difficult to change. But I mean, really, for the first time, we are able to address people need and and deserve more than just sickness care. They deserve ways to stay healthy, to identify what's unique about them. Instead of telling everybody you should walk 10,000 steps, telling everybody they should sleep um, seven to nine hours every night, 
tell everybody to at one point to eat no fat, now to eat no carbohydrates and go back and forth, but really to use these technologies to identify here's the right diet for you. Genetically, you're lucky enough to be a short sleeper, you know, and it isn't about how many steps you take, it's how um, avoiding inactivity and how do you avoid inactivity for you. And when you think about everybody that was there, um, almost everybody's focus was how do you better empower the consumer of healthcare. Um, they weren't about how do you increase patient flow inside a healthcare system or, or how do you do a surgery faster or better. It's really about how do you keep people healthy in their homes longer. Yeah, I feel like the folks at, say, the Institute of Systems Biology embodied things yeah. like this. And it was really refreshing to see that switch from not just what makes somebody present a diseased phenotype, but what is it actually that makes somebody healthy? Because yeah. I think traditionally, we don't necessarily think of what is optimum. We just look at what is normal and what is abnormal. Right. And even when we look at, we look at it at a population level. There are things that we can't, um, that we are lucky enough to have good genes or lucky enough not to, but there are environmental things. And, and so we give these population-like recommendations and we have the ability to do better than that. We just need the, the incentive and then the proof that that does actually improve um, outcomes. Yeah. So one of the interesting debates that occurred, I think, during the conference was this topic of will we really need doctors in the future? Yeah. And there was definitely some division there. And I wondered what your thoughts were on this, because if we have, say, an already pretty poor system of treating chronic disease, but then we get these amazing wearable chemical sensors that give us real-time information on how things we eat and how we sleep and when we exercise, how this affects our, our blood markers, what is it that the doctors can do? I mean, yeah. will they have expertise to really give us a, a better answer than what we're getting from our own our own bodies and yeah. devices? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be a welcome. You know, change is always hard, especially in the medical profession, but it'll eventually be a very welcome change for doctors who in surveys, you know, 80% describe their morale as poor to very poor. Two-thirds would not recommend a young adult go into the field of medicine, which is really sad. Imagine, you know, what a great honor to be a doctor and to get paid and paid handsomely to keep people ideally healthy. But I think the frustration comes, uh, the reason a lot of people go into medicine is their ability to uh, engage with patients and take care of them. And that's lost right now. And it's because it goes back to this perverse incentivization where you get paid by bringing the patient in, getting them out, bringing them in, getting them out. And that's very unsatisfying. And you look at, at two very common chronic conditions, the most common, the second and third most common reason to see a doctor in the U.S. is high blood pressure and diabetes. That's algorithmic medicine. There is absolutely no reason why an individual who, after graduating from college, went to med school for four years, did a residency for three years, and then often did a fellowship after that for another three to four years to follow an algorithm. You know, you barely need a high school degree to be able to do that. But that's what we do because that's what we get paid to do. So what I envision that much like, um, let's say, meteorology is a great example of where a meteorologist is still very necessary but their, their decision-making is supported by, you know, artificial intelligence and a lot of data sources. And, and that's what I believe medicine will be. And when somebody sees a doctor in the future, they'll see them because they need a diagnostician or they need an educator, and they won't see them for seven minutes. And, and during that seven minutes, the doctor's back is to the patient most of the time because they're typing the electronic health record. But they'll spend 45 minutes or an hour with the doctor so that they can have 
have ex- explained what it is that's going on and what needs to be done next. And and so it's, it's going to be a shift and it's going to be not a smooth shift. Do you think the tuition and the the learning is going to have to change uh, throughout med school yeah. to bring in some of these technologies. Yeah, I, I think both things. The tuitions of medical schools, first of all, are, you know, set this expectation that, you know, doctors, you have to make a lot of money when you're done. That's the only because you have to pay off all this debt. And, and the last time I saw a year ago, the average medical student graduates with $200,000 in debt. And that has a, a career-changing impact on, on physicians. It prevents physicians to go into primary care and the like. But then the training has to change. It, training in medicine, it's still looked at as a negative thing if, if a doctor looks up something. Um, and we're kidding ourselves. I mean, there are 50,000 new peer-reviewed articles published in the medical literature every single week. There is no way, no matter how smart we think we are, no matter how on top of things we'd, we'd like to think our doctor is, there's just no way they can stay up on things. And studies have shown that the average half-life um, of a definitive study showing the benefit of a new intervention and it being implemented in half of the eligible population is 17 years. So essentially, you have to wait for your doctor to die and have a new doctor to have new treatments um, implemented. And we just ha- we have to learn to teach doctors to feel empowered by having a tablet in their hand and to look up things and to get uh, more clinical decision support uh, supported by machine learning algorithms and the like. Yeah, what is it? Science progresses one funeral at a time. Yeah, I like that, and that's very true. Yeah, the turnover is so rapid. And do you think there's going to be an increased role? Um, we saw some of it mentioned at the, the conference that we went to. But do you think there's going to be an increased role maybe for kind of the wellness coaches and the wellness field that can step outside of that traditional standard of care and yeah. sometimes integrate more of the kind of holistic picture and use some of these technologies and data? I mean, I hope that's the case. There are many alternative wellness kind of focuses that many are built around the business of it, which doesn't mean to imply that healthcare systems aren't either. But it's what I look at. So in a healthcare system, the executive physical is really a meaningless exercise that just brings a lot of money into healthcare systems, but really does very little. But if you had a a wellness coach bolstered by, let's say, you know, you wear a a certain sensor that tells many things over two weeks every year, you get a lot more valuable information from that. And then somebody to give you the feedback of saying, okay, for you, this is the right diet for you. And there've been interesting studies that look at your genomics and your microbiome and other things that you can identify a personalized diet. Or you can say, okay, your activity Activity is this. This is where we try doing this, you know, and really to give personalized advice. I think there's a huge role for that. And I don't think that's what doctors should be doing in the future. We should have people who are, are better at that. And in a personal sense, do you wear a Fitbit? Have I you do. Have tried out any of these other wearable devices? I, one of the benefits of my job is I get to try out a lot of different yeah. um, wearable devices and, you know, both consumer grade and then future medical grade. Yesterday, I was wearing one that's continuous blood pressure. So it measures my beat-to-beat blood pressure for 15 minutes out of every hour just to save the battery. But somewhere in the future, we'll have that. And then even the Fitbit, if you think about things that we've just never had as medical information before, but what our resting heart rates are, even though they're all different. And, and my resting heart rate 
yesterday and today and tomorrow is going to be pretty similar. Um, but if I got the flu, that resting heart rate is going to start going up. So we now have the ability to collect personalized physiological information about people through things like the Fitbit wearables and learn, can that be an early warning for some decompensation? So um, the more consumer friendly they are, the, the easier it is going to be for us to take advantage of that, that information. Have you played around with heart rate variability at all? I know some people yeah. are interested in that in terms of stress markers. So we've done several studies uh, around stress, and I think it, it's one of the biggest uh, kind of unmet needs because what you think is stress, what I think is stress is very um, uh, subjective. And for many people, especially with chronic stress, they don't recognize it until it goes away. And so that would be hugely valuable. There was a recent paper of, of the increase in stress and anxiety on college campuses and it's the same in in many other settings. So heart rate variability is a measure of parasympathetic nervous system activity. It has been shown a lot of promise, but it still has some work to do. From a cardiology standpoint, we've known heart rate variability in people who have had heart attacks um, or have heart failure is a marker for um, risk of dying. And uh, But it's only been implemented in that small population. So by having the Fitbit Ionic or the Apple Watch and other technologies that continuously measure heart rate getting more and more accurate, we will be able to, in a large cohort, measure heart rate variability. So I just want to go into maybe a bit more of the academic side now, because you are, if I'm not mistaken, editor-in-chief of uh, Nature Digital Medicine, right? which is a relatively new uh, journal. So maybe you could kind of discuss uh, the inception of that. Yeah. So the um, the first issue is actually just published on Monday. But for the last year, we've been accepting um, submissions and stuff. So it took a while. But the I- idea is that there was no one single um, landing space for high quality research for people interested in digital medicine. It's a very broad field, as you mentioned, but encompasses the technology, the behavioral science aspects, there's ethical and legal aspects, um, there's uh, clinical implementation science. And there was, you know, if somebody's interested in the field, they'd have to go to multiple different journals and find the right articles. And so what we want the Nature Digital Medicine um, Journal to prove to be is where people who are interested in, in transforming healthcare using digital technologies that they can get a little bit of everything that would help them kind of get a clearer picture and vision for the future of where it can come. And in our first issue in our editorial, what we said is our hope is that we're so successful that we shut the journal down, that digital medicine becomes just plain medicine. The hope is is that um, no, no matter what you do, whether it is with data, whether it's with human behavior, whether it's a fancy new sensor uh, technology, that the majority of the articles will focus on, okay, by implementing this, this is what we found. It must be great for the scientists because doing these studies they probably get them bounced back from other journals thinking that it's not quite relevant yeah. what they're doing with the technology. I think that's very true. And, you know, a lot of journals, I guess, don't completely understand, you know, have a focus either more on the technical side or more on the clinical side. And, and often it straddles both. And And one of the nice things about being one of the nature journals is you get a funnel of people who've submitted to other nature journals and other areas where if it doesn't fit in there, then they can automatically push it in our direction. Right. And I guess you have a huge array of different expertise then on your editorial. Not, we find not enough, um, <laughs> you know, but we have the largest associate editorial board of any of the 
the um, Nature Partner Journals. Uh, I've been reminded several times. Um, but there's still, like, uh, recently got an article looking at uh, gang violence based on analyzing, predicting um, upswings in it based on Twitter um, uh, uh, tweets. And I'm thinking, well, we have no one who has that expertise. And then you go find, and, and I bring up that example only because we, I think in the last year, we've gotten three different studies from three different teams that have looked at some aspect of social media and realized, well, we forgot to put a social media expert on this. So that's the both the exciting and challenging part of the whole field is that it encompasses so many different things. So when you're outside of the Institute and you're disconnected from uh, all the digital technologies, what is it that you like to, to do? How do you spend your time? Because I spend too much time sitting in front of a computer and the like, I, I like being outside um, I especially like it's too rare of traveling and going on you know, long hiking trips in unique locations. Mm-hmm. My favorite locations are places where there's absolutely no cell service. Um, and beyond that, it doesn't really matter to me. If I can go someplace where I can, you know, put in an out of office email that says I will have no access to email period, that's it. You know, those seem to be the most uh, relaxing. And then fortunately, I have two young adult children who tolerate going uh, with me on rare occasions to do things like that. That's great. What's the craziest, uh, most isolated place you've been hiking then? I guess four years ago, I went with my son um, on to Nepal and hiked to Everest Base Camp. Whoa. That was uh, by far my, my favorite. Wow. Just to the base camp and just hiking. So nothing technical, nothing um, fancy, just being really short of breath for a long period yeah, of time was, was basically it. Well, it, it was much harder on me than my son. I can, uh, he was, I guess, 19 at the time or 20. And it gave me a much better, so I'm a cardiologist, it gave me a much better appreciation for my heart failure patients and, and mm. things where I had to walk very slowly, um, especially on an uphill. Um, otherwise, I'd get so short of breath, I'd stop every 10 feet. But it was good. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so my final roundup question, favorite part of the show, if you could give one piece of advice uh, to anybody, could be a scientist, maybe not, uh, in the realm of work, career progression, self-improvement, reaching excellence, what would it be and why? Um, It's really to pursue what excites you. And, and there's a lot of practical barriers to that, that especially young scientists or young physicians don't see where you get trapped in environments where you feel, I can't move now, I'd like to move now. And and there is nothing better to assure a successful career, especially in research, to be pursuing something that actually excites you. Mm-hmm. And nothing more, at least for me, emotional draining to be spending a lot of your time doing something that just doesn't really excite you. I mean, we're not going to come in my generation, your generation, we're not going to come anywhere close to answering um, the, the vast, vast, vast majority of questions that we have to about what makes us unique, what makes us, keeps us healthy. Um, so there's so much work to do that's really important that can truly eventually lead to saving lives, if not directly. And I wish all scientists working in the in the biomedical sciences in any respect could kind of wake up every morning and feel that way and be reminded that what they're doing, it really has an impact on lives. I've seen people who just, you know, have very successful careers on paper, but are not feeling good about what they're doing and just kind of keep going through the motions. And, and there's too many good things, too many good opportunities to do that. Wonderful wisdom there from Steve. 
just going to show that we'll only really contribute something meaningful and lasting in this space if we pursue those things that we're most passionate about. I'd like to thank Dr. Stein Hubble today for his insight and we'll have his bio and other relevant links in the show notes. And remember, if you liked the podcast and you're feeling generous, do the right thing and head on over to iTunes to leave a review. It will really help us out. So thanks again for listening and more good stuff coming soon.